presented by the Common Sense Institute. Welcome to Common Sense Digest, the podcast that seeks to inject a little common sense into Colorado's policy discussion. Here's your host, Earl Wright. Welcome to Common Sense Digest podcast. My name is Earl Wright, and I'm the chairman of the board of CSI. Thank you for joining us today. The 2022 Colorado Legislative Session, which began last month, is now underway in earnest. This year, Democratic legislators who retain a strong majority in both houses intend to embark on an extensive list of priorities which reflects the state of Colorado's economy, social issues hotly contested, and the major successes and failures of last year. Today, I'm joined by two of CSI's very own legislative and policy experts to discuss their expectations in this year's legislative session. I have with me Jake Zambrano, is our Director of Legislative Services and a very experienced observer of the Capitol. Jake, welcome. Thank you, Earl. It's a pleasure to be here. I always enjoy doing this with you. It's great to have you with us too, Jake. I'm also pleased to once again welcome Chris Brown, who is CSI's VP of Policy and Research. Chris, welcome. Good to be here, Earl. Thank you for both joining me. Let's get started, if we could, for a second, since we're going to talk about the legislative session. Jake, you are probably a PhD in this as far as how does the legislative process work. Explain the the governor's State of the Union, his budget, and then how the legislature does what they do. Explain how all that works in Colorado. You bet, Earl. Uh, happy to. And, and Colorado has, has an interesting legislative setup. As you know, they meet once a year for 120 days, the um, second Wednesday in January to the second Wednesday in May. Uh, it's a very, it's a sprint and uh, lots of activity. And, and, and it's essentially the legislature's only requirement constitutionally is to pass a, a state budget um, to fund government programming for Colorado in the upcoming fiscal year. Traditionally, the governor submits a budget to the legislature in the fall. His budget this year ranged right around $40 billion. It prioritizes and outlines his policy priorities, and he presents that budget to the Joint Budget Committee. The Joint Budget Committee is comprised of six members of both chambers, the House and the Senate. The majority party um, from each chamber gets two appointees to the committee, and the minority party gets one appointee to the committee, which comprises the six. The governor's budget is essentially advisory to the Joint Budget Committee. The Joint Budget Committee meets independently of the governor throughout the year to develop, design, and build the state budget, at which point they finish the budget, which is typically in late March, early April. They then take it to across the street to the full chamber and present their budget to their colleagues in both the uh, House and Senate, at which point the budget gets debated and every legislator has an opportunity to um, amend the budget. Um, you have to go count your votes to get an amendment on in each chamber. So that would be um, 18 in the Senate and 33 in the House. And if you're successful at doing that, then you've essentially changed the state budget. Typically, Eight or ten budget amendments get onto the overall budget when 125 to 150 are presented every year. You you get kind of a, a, an appreciation for the both the respect and the duty that those appropriators have based on their appointment from their colleagues uh, and, and how much faith their colleagues put in them to, to bring them an essentially built budget um, of how to spend $40 billion of, of our money. How many people are in that group, the budget committee? Six. My goodness. Yeah, it's a big job. It's a big job. It's a coveted job. It's a job that many want and very few get. So basically, our Colorado budget is you know six people getting together. How do they get their information? How, what's the input that they get to be this uh, 
oligarch. Yeah. So uh, they they are a standing committee comprised of members from both chambers, the House and the Senate. They meet year round. While we have a um, 120 day legislative session, the Budget Committee is is tasked with building this 40 billion dollar budget. So they meet on a regular basis, and not only when the legislature is in session. And in that time frame, they get presentations from every state department. They get presentations from um, quasi-governmental entities like Para. They get presentations from um, other retirement funds and other groups, provider fee groups who um, impact the budget. They take all of that information, and, and, and starting in December, uh, late December, they start building out um, the $40 billion. And, and it's all based on the baseline from the year before. Um, uh, previous governors a lot of times have said, you know, we're going to come in and, and in downtimes. You know, every department's got to cut their budget by 3% or 4%. Some governors come in and take a more scalpel approach. Higher ed has learned this the hard way several times in both yours and my tenure. So it, the, the approach is, is not one size fits all, but these six people are tasked with basically putting their stamp on, on the final budget and, and then pitching it to their other uh, 94 colleagues. In the, in the House and Senate. If you have a split, uh, uh, the Senate controlled by one party and the House controlled by another, how does that budget committee get put together? Fascinating question. And that's happened a couple of times in, in the time that I've been uh, a lobbyist for Common Sense Institute. So essentially the majority party gets two appointees, the minority party gets one. This is the beautiful part about the budget committee. It's, it, it truly is collaborative. I would venture to say that 75 or 80% of their votes are 6 zero. They make sure that that everybody on the committee is comfortable with that portion of the budget they're building that day. That being said, if the say Republicans controlled the Senate and Democrats controlled the House, it would be a three-three committee. And in Colorado, a three-three vote fails, ties fail. Um, and so you have to, in that scenario, go get buy-in from at least one member of the other party to come on. If, if we're talking about just a simple party-line vote, you would have to get one member of the opposing party. To agree with your with your principle or your proposal, um, in order to move something forward and, and put it in the budget. Jake, thank you so much for giving us kind of a clear understanding of how the process works here in Colorado. I I thought I understood it, and I understand it much better. Thank Excellent. you so much. Thank you, Earl. Let's start with this session, if we could. Okay. What do you see the top priorities that uh, the lawmakers are looking at? And I guess really this budget committee is forced to think about at the present time. That's a great question and a great starting point. And, and you know, you don't have to look very much further than wherever you get your news from. But um, front page every day, inflation, law and order, crime, um, education, mask mandates for kids, who's in charge of schools, uh, and then unemployment, unemployment insurance, and that the impact that that has on small businesses in Colorado. Those are probably the top four things that that the majority of lawmakers are talking about day in and day out right now. Uh, Jake, you'd mentioned a $40 billion budget that we have uh, possibly this year. Do I remember correctly, but that's significantly higher than in previous years, isn't it? It is, Earl. And and the state has enjoyed excess revenues that they didn't expect or forecast for um, in the in the last 12 months. So that's driving part of it. The other part of it is a federal infusion of dollars that will be built in to the budget one way or another, 1.7 to be exact, um, to be spent on, on priorities that the legislature deems necessary um, based on the American Rescue Plan Act. So you, you have a couple of um, phenomenons happening at the same time that takes what was a, a mid-30 billion dollar budget last year and takes it to almost 40 billion dollars this year. Mind you, when I started lobbying in 2002, 
the state budget was, I believe, $19 billion. So in my 20-some-odd years, the state budget has doubled. I don't feel like 20 years is that long of time frame, but it gives you some perspective of, of where, where Colorado was and, and where we are today. In your previous comments about priorities, uh, you mentioned unemployment insurance. Uh, give us a sense, if you would, as to what kind of decisions are they making there? You know, we did a study on unemployment right. insurance, yep. and and one of the things that Chris and his team came up with is that you know, we could have a $5.3 billion you know, additional tax right. on um, the Colorado businesses to try to to get that uninsurance uh, program back up to full funding. What are they looking at? Are, are they looking at that specifically? And Chris, would you kind of fill us in on what the is- options are that they could take? I guess as a starting point, this is a this is a big issue in this session that clearly has not been an issue in, in prior sessions in the same way. I'll spare you the full play-by-play, but you know, over the last two years since the start of the pandemic, the unemployment insurance trust fund, along with a federal loan, has contributed more than $7 billion, probably closer to $8 billion in income support to Coloradans through the economic disruption we've seen over the last 24 months. You know, a report from Department of Labor here in Colorado estimated or or indicated 27% of Coloradans, more than 850,000 Coloradans, received at least one unemployment insurance uh, related payment through through 2020 and uh, you know as a result of those payments the state trust fund was depleted and was running a deficit starting in late summer 2020 and is at a, a balance a negative balance of more than a billion dollars the state Colorado is one of nine states nationally that has a uh, a federal loan uh, that was used to support payments, and that's more than a billion dollars. And you know, the number you cited is of five point three billion is is the estimated increase in total taxes, payroll taxes that will have to be levied on businesses on you know payroll, so hiring and retaining employees to replenish the state fund, to pay off the federal loan. And so the fundamental question before the legislature is what are the options to alleviate some of those pending tax increases that will be borne by employers on behalf of their employees as we're still in the midst of a a recovery? A point of clarification, if I could. You said 27% of uh, Coloradoans received one form or another of something from the rescue plan. The uh, is that did I hear that correctly? Uh, 27% or 850,000 Coloradans received at least one payment uh, in the form of unemployment okay. insurance. My my question then is, did we ever get that high of an unemployment level? I don't remember seeing anything that suggested Colorado had that level of unemployment during the pandemic. It peaked at about 15% was the around approximately 15% was the unemployment rate. Again, most of the layoffs occurred in April of 2020, but they there was sustaining layoffs through today. And so the the new claims continued. So the unemployment rate has come down as there's been some rehiring, but at the same time some businesses have been able to rehire. Others have continued to shed jobs. Okay, so there's a rotation of people that were, in effect, impacted by it. And so maybe today I was helped, but tomorrow 
I didn't need it, but somebody else needed it, and that accumulated to 27%. Correct. And I only make that point because this has been a significant part of the recovery of sustaining incomes and consumption and and, and economic well-being. But now is the question of what to do with the massive deficit and federal loan and alleviate some of those tax increases in the future. Jake, I'm going to throw that hot potato to you. Sure. so what what are the legislators thinking about with regards to this and and what is you know what are the what's the range of yep. uh, solutions they're thinking about very hot topic uh, and I think all 100 legislators will tell you that absolutely something has to be done um the governor proposed around 600 million dollars in in immediate um cash funds being sent to shore up the unemployment insurance trust fund um, there's a bill that actually Chris is going to testify on on Thursday morning uh, in the Senate that contemplates um, over a billion dollars to the UI Trust Fund. There's no dis- is that in addition to what the governor uh, no. suggested? No, uh, that's that's total. The one thing that I that they all agree on is that something has to be done. The number is the moving target. When you're building a forty billion dollar budget, you have to look at it from a macro standpoint all the time. Because everything, you know, one move here impacts another move there. So what the majority party is responsible for, and and this is uh, when you listen to budget debates, you know, they like to reiterate and remind their friends in the minority party. Like our job is to appropriate and to pass a budget. Your job is to criticize it and tell the Colorado people why it's terrible. And so that's the partisan piece that gets involved in this negotiation. And, And I think that's part of the negotiation happening on the front line right now with some legislators using their prerogative of introducing five bills every year to address this issue because they see that as the only way to address it. Um, it, The budget committee can very much do this in their figure setting process that they have in place as they build the budget. But there's a Senator and some of his colleagues that believe the number needs to be much higher than what the majority party has kind of sketched out as the, uh, as the marker for a contribution to the UI Trust Fund this fiscal year. Not being cynical, but my experience in, in hearing uh, as what you just described suggests that somebody may suggest, if you're a minority, something larger than what was proposed, but the likelihood of that happening is pretty small. T- typically, and given where the bill has been assigned and where Chris will be testifying Thursday, it's a committee that a lot of bills um, that, that are being presented by members of the minority party don't come out of. I'm not prognosticating as to where what the result of of Senator Woodward's bill will be but I think that the that the legislature wants to have um, a larger conversation about this and it not be one bill from one senator but that it be a more collaborative process at least that's my hope and I think that um, when we met with representative the speaker representative Garnett a couple of weeks ago, that was sort of the answer he gave the board as well. You know, we'll probably end up somewhere in between the governor's proposal and and what some of his colleagues were proposing in the legislature. Um, and that's typically how it works in Colorado. Let's kind of move on, if we could, to other issues. I want to ask you specifically about something, Jake, that I just read uh, uh, this morning, as a matter of fact. Uh, I understand that the Family Leave Act that was passed by popular vote here in Colorado that there may be a challenge uh, in the courts with regards to it's a violation of Tabor. Do you uh, do you think that that's going to impact anything? Because we know CSI studies have already pointed out that that, from a financial perspective, that program could be in trouble very early on uh, if uh, people take advantage of it like they have in Rhode Island and California. Do you have any sense of uh, what uh, what might be transpiring there? Or some discussions that might be materializing. 
that's a really good question, Earl, and 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 one that um, that I think is all on all of our minds since the Family Leave Act has passed um, by voters uh, two years ago, and and that is the way that the authors of 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 the question wrote the question was essentially family leave would be paid for by employees and employers, very similar to the way we pay for unemployment insurance. There is a group of folks that have decided to challenge that preface that you create this program as a fee um, and that that the fee violates the Taxpayer Bill of Rights and would push, as you know, the, the way Tabor works in Colorado, push the Colorado state budget over the 5% maximum that the budget can increase in any one fiscal year to the next. So there's a group that has challenged whether or not the Family Leave Act is eligible to be an enterprise and outside of the Tabor sideboards. Chris, go ahead. You you were going to add to that? You bring up paid leave, which is something we've studied quite a bit. And there's some other interesting developments in the discussion on the implementation side. The priority of the legislative session has been addressing affordability there is a number of anticipated fees that we've studied previously as well that will be implemented in the next couple of years. The largest of those being the payroll fee of, to fund the paid family medical leave program. There's some discussion of alleviating that fee using federal dollars to offset the cost of that program in the initial years. The taxes supposed to the fee will begin next year, being collected next year. Eligibility for receiving benefits won't start for a whole nother year. And so there's some discussion about offsetting those costs, at least temporarily. So there's still some debate about this issue, both possibly legally, but also legislatively and through the budget to address the pending impacts of this issue. I I want to challenge both of you, if I may, and kind of have you just go back three or four months, if you would, and say, okay, three or four months ago, these were the highest two or three priorities that that looked like the, the session was going to be faced with. How might those priorities have been changed in the last 60 days or 30 days? You know, legislators respond to, you know, they're all they're all elected, some of them every two years, some of them every four years. Um, and so the news of the day uh, often drives legislative priority. Um, I, I don't know that we would have seen a ton of um, wildland fire mitigation bills prior to what we saw in Boulder County recently. Um, th- that is at the forefront now. You know, inflation and, and, and it being continuing to be on the front page. Uh, we see constantly policymakers and lawmakers trying to respond to that. And we heard that in the governor's state of the state where he um, committed to delaying a 2% per gallon gas fee and and we've seen proposals in the legislature that would extend the time out on vehicle registration surcharges you know all in the the majority party's proposal uh, claims to save Coloradans about 103 million dollars a year sounds like a ton of money Earl in a 40 billion dollar budget that's less than one quarter of one percent of the overall state budget right so where are we addressing affordability for Coloradans um, I think every legislature legislator will tell you it's a priority. This is the beauty of a two party system is is they generally approach that solution in different ways. I want to follow up on your comment if I could with regards to um, uh, Governor Polis and some of the comments he made, and you mentioned a couple of things here. He said our party is quote laser focused on improving public safety, making housing more affordable, and saving people money. Help me out. How do you see specifically 
what the session is going to be proposing, and how do you see it being different than what they've done in the past? You know, the governor, very much the talking points of, of really both political parties right now, you know, and I, and it was sort of tongue-in-cheek early on in the session uh, where I believe it was the communications director for the state Senate kind of chided the communications director um, for the majority party in the state Senate from the minority party in the state Senate. Basically, their priority ag- agenda and announcement was um, identical, and they kind of had some good fun with, but, you know, we plan to get we get, get to it this way, and you plan to get to it that way. And, you know, hopefully we meet somewhere in the middle. It was very uh, interesting pleasantries at the outset of the session. The reality is, take crime uh, and public safety, for example. The legislature has been laser-focused on sentencing reform um, for the last couple of years. Some would argue that that sentencing reform has caused um, the bad guys to to be less afraid about going to jail. You know, we saw the governor uh, commute a sentence that a judge had had issued in December, and some people agree that that was the right call, and some people don't. I, I think the, the legislature has a large amount of power. Frankly, from a constitutional standpoint, we have a weak governor in Colorado, and, and all the power in Colorado lies with the 100 people on the second floor in the Capitol. In reality, that's not always the case. The governor enjoys the bully pulpit. He gets to drive the agenda. He's one person. And so it makes for for very interesting debate. But the beautiful part about uh, the legislature is there's 100 people in there with unique ideas. They all get an opportunity to introduce five bills. Of Those five bills are required to have at least one hearing. We have a single subject rule when it comes to title. So you can't introduce a bill about public lands and there be... Um, um, language in there about transportation. Well, you mentioned how many people down? Did there's, you mention there's, there's 65 in the House and 35 in the Senate, so 100 total. 100 total. Yes, sir. And let's be honest with our listeners: the, the 100 total really have equal say. They all have a, an equal opportunity to introduce the same number of bills. Now, is the speaker how about equal influence? Is the speaker uh, more powerful than a freshman member from Grand Junction? Yes. But that's politics. Our political system is built on. A so it doesn't system. matter if you're an R or D. You you still can be equally effective down in the legislature. Being in the majority helps. There's no question about it. Uh, you know, elections have consequences. We've all said it. And and uh, being in the majority party is definitely that would be your preference, right? But it's a it's a system based on seniority as well. Committees have ranking members. Committees have chair people. And and those that are pragmatic and show an ability to work kind of both sides of the aisle are, are some of the best lawmakers that I've ever worked with. And and typically those that rise to to positions of leadership as well. One of the areas that we've worked in. Uh, Jake, to continue to put you on the spot, if I may, uh, is para. And uh, it's been something uh, we become very aware of as far as the last number I saw, Chris, or 28 to 30 billion deficit. Is it still up around that range? And they have a chance this year to make up a little bit of that for not doing what they should have done last year, which they had the right to you know, pass on the $200 million statutory, I guess, obligation they said they were going to make, but they didn't do it. But they have a chance to make it make it up this year and also make up uh, the uh, lost uh, earnings on that, which is about $87 million. Will they? Uh, it sounds like they will, uh, uh, Mr. Chairman. And, and I think partially you stepped up as a citizen um, and, and took in a legislative appointment to serve on um, an interim committee that dealt with this exact issue. The committee um, talked through a number of topics with regard to our state um, employee retirement system for public employees. And, and I think the one issue that that everybody on the committee um, stacked hands on was that because the legislature a year ago foregone its commitment to a $250 million appropriation to PARA to help work 
towards that deficit that there, there was there was an actual economic loss beyond the 250 that could be measured. Um, I think the legislature agrees with the recommendation from the interim committee you were on, and I do I'm optimistic that that will pass and that will uh, will be in the final budget. That's good news. Let's say that you're the uh, the omniscient, benevolent dictator of the legislature. What would you like to see come out of this legislative session? You know, I um, have been doing this a long time, and I've always approached lawmaking as as less is more. I've always admired lawmakers that don't go down there to run and pass five bills. Sometimes I think it's better to to kill bills or not run bills. Or you know, I represent a free market, a free enterprise institute that um, believes strongly in the free market. You know what Mark Cuban has announced in the last couple of weeks with his cost plus pharmacy plan is a total disruptor. You know, we argue about prescription drugs and the supply chain and does the state control the price or, or, you know, who's, who's in charge here. And, and, and here we got a a business person in, in this country who's gone out and introduced an idea that could totally disrupt the way drugs are distributed and purchased in this country, prescription drugs. So, you know, I'm, I'm always of the mindset, like sometimes government should take a step back and let free thinkers and innovators and entrepreneurs find solutions to problems. And, and it doesn't, there's not always a government solution to every problem. And, and I do think, you know, the independent spirit and that, that Colorado was, was, was founded on and, and, and being kind of the entry point to the West, I still think there is a mindset of that down there. Um, I think sometimes you get in the, in the bubble of day-to-day lawmaking and, and, and sometimes maybe you, you forget about it, but I do believe that all 100 of them are down there for the right reasons. They just don't all see the world the same. And so the solution isn't always the way you or I would, would view it. But um, I do think that all their hearts are in the right place. Chris, I'm not going to let you off the hook on that question because considering Common Sense Institute and the studies that we've done and our belief in free enterprise system, what two, three things would you like to see that they address and possibly uh, – resolved this year? In some ways, in many ways, I share Jake's sentiment. Being someone that focuses on the numbers, I may put a finer point on the thinking that we need solutions that allow Coloradans, markets, producers, consumers to drive the innovation and change that we need. There is a historic amount of money available prioritized to go to housing, uh, upwards of $400 million, more than 10 times more than is generally spent in the area of housing in any given year. One report, the report that came out from the state committee making recommendations on where that money should go, estimated and and reports have suggested would impact and and contribute to an additional maybe 10 to 15,000 new units, housing units. In that same report, they produce an estimate that we, over the next th- three to five years, we need to build more than 320,000 new units. So you have a historic amount of public money available, largely because I mean, primarily through federal relief, that is only able to chip away in a very small manner to a huge housing supply deficit we face that, in my opinion, is driving a large part of this affordability crisis that that we face here in the state. So and contributing to inflation. A driving factor of inflation, migration decisions, investment decisions, and education decisions. So I think while that money needs to be prioritized and spent, I, I would hope that there is a larger focus on long-term 
solutions to alleviate many of the regulatory challenges that our housing market faces or our medical production and, and supply markets face. So I, I would hope that this is a, is a reckoning for longer term structural solutions as opposed to looking at the immediate availability of windfall federal dollars because that's not going to get us there. Well, that's rather sobering. And we have that excess that uh, Jake talked about to begin with, thanks to the American Rescue Plan. And what I heard you just say, Chris, is some of what you would like to see happen doesn't really cost anything. It's in the regulatory environment. A good discussion about how some of these dollars could be used to make an impact long term. And I guess, is that discussion being had? Jake, you've been eloquent in in describing how the process works. Do you see the kind of conversation Chris is hoping to have materializing? I mean, the baseline in Colorado is we are from a from a structural standpoint, a decentralized state, human services, oil and gas, local municipalities, local jurisdictions are empowered to make a lot of these decisions for themselves. When you do that, you do require a lot of regulatory rulemaking and authorizations and oversight. Uh, and, and the state has beefed up, you know, their different departments that oversee those processes. So, yeah, I am optimistic that that there can be collaboration between regulators and policymakers and local jurisdictions and those that want to get into a new market. You know, we've seen very interesting responses um, with regard to the pandemic. You know, you're seeing new compacts with healthcare providers that can now cross state lines, you know, being able to, to bolster our availability of physicians based on a little bit of a rule change as to how a physician is, physician is licensed based from Nebraska to Colorado. Productive things that, that groups of citizens who have been asked to serve on most of the time volunteer basis, like you did in the interim committee, are being asked to put their minds around as experts in their field, um, new policies uh, at, the, at the regulatory level. Um, that the legislature has empowered them to do. And I, that's a healthy conversation. That's a good environment. Uh, Senate Bill 181, which totally forced oil and gas to engage the local municipalities from which they were um, extracting the resource from, to have conversations about what's best for the local community. Has it, is it perfect? No. Is it hard? Absolutely. Is it a conversation that if I'm a mayor or a city council person that I want to have with somebody that's doing business in my city or county? A hundred percent. That That's positive change in this state. And, and, you know, that's the legislature relinquishing or releasing some of their authority to allow, you know, different um, sets of, of regulators and policymakers to make those decisions. Chris, Jake, thank you so much for your, your, your candor. In discussing the topics and answering my questions, it's a it's a lively discussion. I must admit, I'm rather interested in seeing how the session works. And now that I know more about it, following key members, particularly the Budgetary Committee, and what comes out of that, and then how that might be changed uh, in a collaborative process, I hope, Jake. Yep. I want to thank everybody uh, for, for listening today. But before we sign off, uh, any final comment, Chris, you'd like to add to this conversation? I think we've done a, a good job covering the big, the big issues. I think it's important that Coloradans continue to stay you know, in tune on what does come out of this session and what uh, gets taken up in, in years to come. But I think we're at an interesting moment with a couple key issues coming out of the pandemic in terms of unemployment insurance and how to use federal dollars that you know could have a substantial impact to Jake's point I think it, it, it I don't want to underplay that and I think it's important for Coloradans to tune in to to how these changes might impact them 
Yeah, I'm, I'm going to push Jake a little bit on that comment. Uh, is all we can do, Jake, is tune in, or is there a chance that Coloradoans can have their opinions expressed and be heard, and if so, how? You know, l- lawmaking is a contact sport, and I don't mean that in a negative connotation. It's it's it, Being present is required. The Common Sense Institute, along with a lot of other groups that are very that are similar to to um, how we are structured, it engage in the legislative process on on a day to day basis. And and I would just say that, you know, the majority of legislators elected to public office outside of leadership have jobs elsewhere. They have to earn a living in another place. Being a legislator is not a full time job in Colorado, nor does it pay enough to raise a family in Colorado. And so they have to be outside of the building reporting to a boss and writing reports for somebody else doing something else that that pays them to pay their bills. And so in addition to that, they get one part-time staff person during the session as a rank-and-file member, regardless of party. So they rely heavily on the lobby, and they rely heavily on groups like the Common Sense Institute to provide fact-based research that allows them to make sound decisions on, on 500, a minimum of 500 bills that they'll review every year. And, and so I, I view us you know, as a resource, as, as a partner in the conversation, a, a, as a group that prides itself on providing, just like our name says, common sense information to a lawmaker um, who doesn't have time to perhaps read a 55-page bill. But you know, our reports boil these issues down very nicely and always refer back to the facts. And, and, and to me, that's an invaluable um, contribution to, to the process and, and to the citizens of Colorado. Jake? Chris, thank you so much. I appreciate uh, all of your insight, and I know that everybody in the podcast has had a little bit more of a sense of how do things work in Colorado and and also a stronger sense of what we can do about it. Thank Thank you. Thank you, Earl. Thanks, Earl. Thank you for listening to the Common Sense Digest. For more on today's topic, as well as our research on the most pressing public policy issues facing Colorado, please visit commonsenseinstituteco.org. The preceding episode, along with all others, is available on podcatchers everywhere or on our website under the podcast tab. Our technical producer is John Ekstrom and Deft Communications. This has been a production of the Common Sense Institute.